Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's only eight verses, but we're just going to tackle the first four. And there's just so much here in these first four verses. So once you turn there and you find Revelation chapter 15, then I'd ask you to stand as we read God's word together, okay? Beginning at verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So this is kind of an introductory to the very last part of this three-way cycle of judgments of God before the very end comes. There's much more, obviously, in the book of Revelation that will take place uh, in the interim. Verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. You are king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we ask now as we dig deeper into your word, as we, as we wade into this 15th chapter, and already I know as I read this again, as I've just read it out loud, I marvel. I marvel that this is true. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and I just pray that your Holy Spirit now would challenge each one of us, would encourage us with your word, would teach us, would help to clarify what all these things mean, that we would grow closer to you through the process. Be our teacher this morning, we pray, in the name of the Lamb, who is slain on our behalf, but is alive in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, you know, it can be fun to be around enthusiastic people, can it? And the reason that it can be fun is because oftentimes they can lift your mood, they can raise your spirits, they can bring you out of the doldrums of a down day, if you happen to be having one. They usually make, usually make the best teachers, the most interesting speak, speakers, the most fun bosses, usually the most successful salespeople. That can be a good or a bad thing. And especially if you're one who needs a little motivational push, the most helpful friends and spouses. Yet sometimes all that hype and excitement may leave you, sometimes, scratching your head with one hand on the doorknob looking for an exit. Like when you're in the second hour of a one-way conversation about the pros and cons of, of different septic tank pump companies. 
or given detailed arguments supporting the, the latest, hottest conspiracy theory concerning the real reason gas prices shot up so high. <clears throat> Enthusiasm about unusual or seemingly mismatched things may leave us sometimes very uncomfortable or bothered. Now, John, as in the Apostle John, as the writer of the book of Revelation under the inspiration of God's Spirit, John here could certainly raise that confused reaction in what we've just read in Revelation chapter 15. Look at how he begins again in verse 1. John writes, and I saw another sign in heaven. And then he describes it with two significant words. He says, great and marvelous. But the sentence doesn't end there. The verse doesn't end there. It continues on. There should be a comma. Seven angels who had, wait a minute, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had what? Seven plagues, which are the last, because in them, and then we have another description, the wrath of God is finished. Now, when I first read that first verse in chapter 15, I, I paused there for a few moments, temporarily, kind of hung up on what at first looked like some unusual words to be tucked into the verse, looking at the context of what we're talking about, not only in verse 1, but in the things to come in subsequent chapters. I paused for a moment and looked at those words over and over again that John said so clearly, translated in most English versions as great and marvelous. In fact, as I did a little more research, I found out that those words are only used together, great and marvelous, here and in verse 3 in the same chapter in all of the New Testament. This same verse, as I just mentioned, is describing horrible things, negative things, plagues. And also at the end of the verse, the wrath of God. These already are concepts and ideas and words and phrases that make so many uncomfortable. But then John looks at the whole scene with excited wonder. As he tells us, these things, plagues and the wrath of God, are great and marvelous. Well, what is he saying here? The word great is an interesting word in the original Greek. It's, it literally reads mega. It is what we get our English word mega from. It means over the top. It means astonishing. In this context, only something our God could do. The word marvelous in the original language could also be translated awe-inspiring or breathtaking or awesome. In other words, here, John, the Apostle John, is, is simply reeling with emotion. He's astounded. He's, he's blown away by this unfolding heavenly picture before him. Now, I think it's safe to say, in looking at the background, the previous 14 chapters, 
looking at the way that John has expressed himself and expresses himself through the rest of chapter 15, that John isn't frightened here. Now, I'm not talking about the fear of God. I'm talking about human fear. I don't feel that John is repulsed. I don't think he's nervous or upset or shocked. I certainly don't think that he's embarrassed, ashamed, or uncomfortable or confused. John looks at the scene that the Holy Spirit has brought before him. Something real, something true, something future, something prophetic. He's seeing it with his very eyes. He's taking it in with all of his senses. And he simply says, great and marvelous. Why? Well, remember the context here. John was not in a cushy Patmos Airbnb on the water waiting for good food to be delivered by some delivery uh, uh, service from a latest Greek restaurant nearby. John is a prisoner on first century Patmos, which was a barren, rocky island, a penal colony. His only crime, what? Loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is tough for John. We can gather that he likely suffers daily. He well knows firsthand Christian persecution. But he gets the big picture. In the vision, in the revelation that God has given him, he is getting the big picture great and marvelous. Great and marvelous because God has a perfect plan. And great and marvelous because God is faithful to that plan. Great and marvelous because God keeps his promise to his people. Here in these first four verses in this 15th chapter, I think we clearly see, as we just read these four verses together, three significant things that stir up this excitement in John. Three truths we could add that we can certainly, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, hang our hope on, even today, along with John. So what's the first one? They all start with the letter S, and they all appear with the letter S here in the text. So I'm going to point out all three of them first, and then we'll look at them individually. Now, I'm reading from the NAS, NASB, the New American Standard Bible. You may have a different version, but here they all clearly begin with S in English. So in verse 1, we have another sign. So the key word there, I highlighted it in my Bible, is the word, this little four-letter word, sign. The second thing that we see, significant thing to hang your hope on, also starts with an S in verse 2. And that word is C, S-E-A. The third thing that we see here that's significant that you can hang your hope on in verse 3 also starts with the letter S. What is it? You can guess by now. Song. 
song. So highlight in your Bibles, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles, if you do, write it somewhere else then. We've got three significant things here that are getting John excited. The sign, the sea, and the song. Well, let's look at the first one in verse 1. So you can hang your hope as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ on this. There is, first of all, a great and marvelous sign. The truth here, meaning unrestrained evil, will end. Unrestrained evil, like you and I are witnessing more and more in our world today, more and more in the United States of America, more and more in our own state of Oregon, our own nearby metropolitan area of Portland. That unrestrained evil, that increasing evil, that increasing rebellion against God, against the truth, against morality, will end. What I love so much about the book of Revelation, what excites me about the book of Revelation, that it is always moving. God is never stuck. God is never bound. He's never constrained by all the garbage happening in our world. Because our God is a sovereign God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has a holy timetable, a perfect calendar that no one can touch. And when time is up, when time is done, it is irreversibly final. Did you catch that? We see that in verse 1. That's what this sign is all about. And I saw another sign in heaven. Now, why does he use the word another? I believe that that refers us back to two more signs that are mentioned earlier in Revelation back in chapter 12. And we find that in verse 1 and we find that in verse 3 before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Time is up though. How do we know? Because he uses the word last. He says, he talks about this sign that's coming. These seven angels who have seven plagues, which we'll get into much more detail about, beginning in verse 16. But then he adds this, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Now, last in this verse, in verse 1, is in the original language, emphatic. Well, what does that mean? It means that it is it's like a spotlight is shining on it. Literally, we would translate that the last ones. It's a device and grammar that wants you to pay attention to this. It's, it's very important. It's for emphasis, the last, the very last. These are the grand finale, the last, meaning the seven plagues, before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, supported then by the phrase, in them, in them referring to the plagues, the wrath or the judgment of God is what? How does the verse end? Is finished, right? Is finished. God's timetable is up. That word literally means fulfilled, brought to its intended conclusion. It's over. It's all done. It's the last chapter, the last word, the end. How many times have you been in some unpleasant, even painful medical procedure? 
And while you're going through that procedure, if your conscience, if you haven't been put under, you're just going, oh man, I don't know if I can handle this any longer. And a, a doctor or a nurse or some kind of attendant says to you, we're almost done. And you're thinking, oh gosh. And then they say, just a few more minutes, <clears throat> hang on now, we're at the last point. I remember when I had an MRI done on my neck before I had neck surgery. And the position that they put me in when they put that strange little pillow under you before you're put into the MRI machine just was excruciating in pain because of the, of the angle that they had my neck. 45 minutes. Could not move. There were so many times I wanted to say, get me out of here. And I would ask, how much longer? I can barely stand it. Well, if we stop now, we're just going to have to start all over again. But then the guy finally, the, the operator or the, the one that was conducting the test, you know, they're separate in their own little booth far away, feeling fine, not, not experience any of the discomfort that you are. And he would just keep, keep telling me in his microphone, you're almost there. It's almost done. If you could just stay still just another few minutes and then he'd tell me, we're down to five minutes. It's just going to be three minutes, two minutes. And then how do you feel when they say, it's over, you're all done? How do you feel? You're just like, right? Your whole body just goes into, you know, limp mode. It's like, whoa, you just want to say hallelujah, right? That's what God is saying to us in verse 1. He's saying, believers, you're in the middle of tough times right now. The curse has not been lifted yet. You live in a fallen world. And if you stand tall and strong for the truth and for the gospel, you are going to suffer persecution. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? But he said, there's an end to all this. There's an end to all your suffering. There's an end to all this evil. There's an end to this, this broken world that, that is living and, and buying into a faulty system, a, a system of evil ruled by the evil one. There is an end to all of it. It will be over one day. And that's what this word means. The wrath of God is finished. There will be a day when there will be no more wrath of God. There will be a day when there will be no longer a need for the wrath of God. It will be completely satisfied. It will be over. The second thing that we can hang our hope on is there is a great and marvelous, the second S word there, C, in verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a... Can you imagine this? A sea of glass mixed with fire. This is different from the crystal sea that we saw earlier in Revelation, right? We have the, the sea, but it was a crystal sea. Now we have a sea mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from the image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. 
there is a great and marvelous sea. The truth here being, all suffering from Christ will become victory. All suffering for Jesus Christ will become victory. Why the fire? Most likely symbolic of these saints' particular persecution on earth. These are the the beat up and battered saints from Revelation chapter 13. You remember them who resisted Satan and his oppressive, manipulative world system, who who resisted worshiping the image of the Antichrist, who resisted taking the 666 mark of the beast. Most of them were likely all martyred, certainly banished, certainly lost their jobs, their families, their homes. But notice something. They are standing on, they are standing on, now some commentators say they're standing beside the sea of glass. I don't see that. I reread it a number of times. I studied it. I believe they're standing on the sea of glass, which really draws us back, as does verse 3, to the Old Testament. That's what's so beautiful here. There's a bridge between the Testaments. You know, you get people who get confused about all this. I'm a New Testament person. I have no use for the Old Testament. Well, I'm sorry. If you have no use for the Old Testament, you are casting aside a large percentage of God's revelation that was inspired by the same Holy Spirit who inspired the New Testament. And here we have a beautiful bridge from what? The Exodus the liberation of God's people through the Red Sea from the Egyptians. And we have this beautiful picture all the way extending to the New Testament. There is a great and marvelous sea. Listen how this is put. I think this is interesting. I wish we could read the whole account here, but this is from Exodus chapter 14. That's where we we read the account of the, the liberation of the Israelites. But listen to verse 13 and 14. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand up and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Do you know that was in there? And then he adds this, the Lord will fight while you keep silent. And then what happens? We know the rest of the story, right? We've heard it multiple times. We've seen it in movies. We've seen it in cartoons. We've seen pictures of it, supposed pictures of it. That's the same picture we get here in the book of Revelation. These are God's people. They have been beat up. They have been oppressed. They have been murdered for the sake of Jesus. But, you know, it doesn't matter what the world does to them because God has promised them liberation. They are now standing on the heavenly sea. They're standing on it. Can you imagine that? The crystal sea, now the sea mixed with fire. And what is the key word here in verse 2? Who had come off victorious. What seems as defeat 
and failure to our enemy is in reality pure and holy victory always. Always. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That means no matter what you do for Jesus, as long as you are faithful to Jesus and faithful to his word, it doesn't matter what the world's response is to you. It doesn't matter what it will cost you. It doesn't matter if it looks like you're failing and everybody is against you. In God's reality, you're standing on the sea victorious. It will always be victory. Whatever we do for Jesus Christ will always end up in victory. Can we say that about everything else? All this other stuff that we get tangled up in on earth, all these other things that we pursue, that we pour our time and our, our money into and our energy and get exhausted over, can we say with certainty that those things will equal victory? Well, we don't know. Maybe, maybe not. It depends on, on motives and why we're doing them and what they end up, how, where they end up and everything else. But no matter what we do for the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll always result in victory. Even if it looks like we're failing here. Even if we only end up talking to people one-on-one -on -one, and there's a conversion here and a conversion there and, and a relationship that's, that's begun over here and, and one over here, if it's for the Lord Jesus Christ, it will result in victory because we're giving him the glory and all of that has eternal significance and value. And that's what we're seeing. These people, remember, these people who refused the mark of the beast, these people who, who resisted giving in to the world system that said, no, you have to do this, or we will exclude you. You will not be able to buy and sell. You will not have a job. You will not have a home. You will have no friends. You will be, you will, we will make you pay. You will suffer. How did this group of people look to the world? How did they maybe even feel about themselves? What a bunch of castaways, right? What a bunch of nobody loser people. The bottom of society. How do they look in heaven? How do they look in heaven? All those people that were making fun of them, all those people that were causing their suffering, that were part of that system, that compromised and gave into that system. Are they standing on the sea of glass? Now you see why John's getting excited here. John's going to stand there too, isn't he? But John's already there. Here's the third one, the last one you can hang your hope on. And I'm going to need your help here too in a few moments and I'll explain. There is a great and marvelous, the last S word, song. And here's the truth. From beginning to end, God gets all the credit. That's what we see here. When you read this song, and they're, they're holding these little harps, which are actually little harps. They're not the big, giant ones. Okay, they're not all holding these big, giant things. Okay, they're the little lyres, the little stringed instruments. Almost like a little guitar. They're all holding them and they're singing. Here's that blending again. The song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15. 
We have an actual song of Moses after they've crossed the Red Sea, after the sea is closed over the Egyptian army, after they've been completely victorious and God has done this marvelous thing, this great and marvelous thing. They sing a song. And it says here, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They're blended together into one song. You see the bridging of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the liberation of God's people, the liberation of God's people through the Lord Jesus Christ. One author writes this. The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of a foe, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. The song of the Lamb deals with the same three things. Each line of this song has parallel passages throughout the Old Testament. And what we see here is no mention whatsoever of the accomplishment of the saints. It's not like, hey, we did a good job. You know, let's sing about we overcame and all of this and slap each other on the back and high five each other. It's all of the focus here. The song of Moses, the song of the lamb, the blending of these things together. The final chapter is all one place, isn't it? Now, here's where I want you to help me out. We're going to look at, I've designed this as eight lines here. So I don't know how your Bible has it lined out. But for each one of them, let's look at a couple references that take us back to the Old Testament. But this is where I need your help. So I'm going to call out different refer references. And if you would like to share those out loud, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And then you need to remember the reference. Okay, because I might not remember by the time we get done with this who took which reference. All right, so we're going to begin with, there's just going to be two for each line. So there's going to be 16 verses all together. First line, Exodus 15.11. Who would like to take that? Exodus 15.11. Okay, Nancy. Psalm 86.10. Okay, right up here. And then we're going to have, as we get to the second part of the song, Psalm 89.8, okay, back there, and Jeremiah 32.17 and 18, right there, can you remember that? Jeremiah 32.17 and 18. Now for the third line, Deuteronomy 32.4, okay, right there, will you remember that? Deuteronomy 32.4 and Psalm 119.137. <clears throat> That's a lot to remember. Psalm 119, 137, right up here. Okay, so we go to the fourth line, Psalm 1016. Who would like to take that? Right up here, Psalm 1016. And then the second verse is Zechariah. So that's going to take a little bit of hunting there in the minor prophets. Zechariah 14.9. Zechariah 14.9. Somebody? Okay, right here. And then we're going to go to the fifth line, Psalm 86.9. Somebody? Psalm 86.9, back there. Okay, Jeremiah 10, 6, and 7. 
Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7. All right, and then we're back to Exodus 15, 11 again, but somebody else can read the same verse. You'll see how it applies. Exodus 15, 11. So we're in the Song of Moses. Anybody? Exodus 15, 11, right there. 1 Samuel 2, 2. That's easy to remember. 1 Samuel 2, 2. Who wants to take that? Anybody? Okay, right here. And then we're almost done here. Isaiah 66, 23. Isaiah 66, 23. Somebody? Okay, Jeff, all the way in the back. And then uh, Malachi. So again, you're going to have to do a little hunting in the Old Testament. Malachi 1.11. Somebody want to take that? Okay, Barry. And then we're here we are coming to the end. Psalm 98.2. Psalm 98.2. We've only got two more verses. Okay, back there. And then another one from the Psalms. Psalm 145.17. So you probably need to write that one down. Psalm 145.17. Okay, all the way in the back. So that's the last one. So let's look first at our Bibles at the song. So here's the song of Moses, right? The song of the Lamb. They're blend together. What are they singing? Great and marvelous are your works. Great and marvelous are your works. So what does Exodus 15.11 say? Okay, and that's from the Song of Moses. How about Psalm 86.10? Who had that? For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Okay, great. All right, so we look at the second line then. O Lord God the Almighty. And we begin with Psalm 89.18. Who had that? Psalm 89.19. Or 89.8. I'm sorry. Okay, good words, right? How about Jeremiah 32, 17, and 18? Two verses there. Who had that? Okay, great. Good job. All right, we look at the third line from, this is still in verse 3, Revelation 15. The third line is, righteous and true are your ways. Righteous and true are your ways. Who had Deuteronomy 32, 4? Okay. Okay. 
Okay, great. Good job. Thank you. And who had Psalm 119, 137? Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Okay, very good. Absolutely. So line four, again, still in verse three, says, you are king of the nations. You are king of the nations. The first verse there was Psalm 1016. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Okay. And who had uh, from the minor prophets there is Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. And his name, the only one. Okay, great. Great. Good words. So you see all the parallels there? And there are, there are many, many more that we could cite, but this just gives you an idea of all of this encompassed in, in this one song here. So now we're looking at verse 4, again, in Revelation 15. The first line is, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who will not, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? So we're looking first at Psalm 86.9. Who had that? All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. Okay, great. And Jeremiah 10, two verses there, 6 and 7. Okay, very good. Thank you. So we look at the sixth line, still in the fourth verse, for you alone are holy. For you alone are holy. We go back to that same verse, who had it the second time from Exodus 15, 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Great. Good. All right. And 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, who had that? There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no, <clears throat> there is on no rock like our God. Okay. Everybody believe that? Yeah. John, remember, John is just reeling in this. He's hearing this song out. The seventh line of that fourth verse then, seventh line comprising the two verses together, would be, for all the nations will come and worship before you. So we go, uh, let's go to Isaiah 66, 23. Who had that? From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me. Okay, great. Thanks, Jeff. And then Malachi, again from the uh, Minor Prophets, 111. Okay, great, great, powerful words. And the last line of that fourth verse, the eighth line of the song, 
for your righteous acts have been revealed. Who had Psalm 98 too? Okay, great. And then the last reference here this morning, Psalm 145.17. Who had that? The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all he does. Okay, great. So where's all the focus here? It's all on the Lord, right? It's, it's where it will always be and... In the context of what we've been looking at this morning, where it will ultimately all be. Here's the thing. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be different, right? Aren't we to be different? We know that that's clear teaching throughout the New Testament. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to stand out. We're to be distinct. We walk a different path. We think differently. We walk to a different tune. So even during difficulties, even when facing hostility, <clears throat> even when witnessing increasingly daily evil, even when going through all of the trials and difficulties that we go through, whether they are just because we live in a, in a world that is still under the curse and we, we deal with death, we deal with pain, we deal with sickness, we, we deal with calamity, or because of our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, because of direct suffering, because we've chosen to walk a different path, we've chosen to follow Jesus and not the world. Can't you and I, because we know our God is in total control, because we know that our God has the final word, can't we even then say great and marvelous? I mean, think about it. I really thought about that this past week. I've been moaning and groaning a lot through this past summer. We've had a difficult summer. <clears throat> We've had death and illness and a lot of unexpected things and t terrible things on the surface have gone on. But God is working. You know that Lisa's brother, younger brother, just passed away a couple of months ago just suddenly dropped dead at age 58, was in total and complete perfect health, so we thought. He had an enlarged heart. It's a congenital condition. His twin brother was just checked out last week, just leaped through all of the health care hoops, and they injected him with dye in his veins. 85% shut down. He's 58. He's his twin brother. Appeared to be in perfect health. Took great care of himself. Exercise. Ate right. Very active. Very youthful. 85%. They said, you're not going anywhere. They took care of him right then and there. His brother dying saved his life. I just texted him this morning. I said, man, praise the Lord, brother. He saved your life. Great and marvelous. Death, but death to heaven. Saved a life. The things going on with my dad and my brother, I could have never orchestrated in a million years. Only through difficult times could God bring those kinds of things together. 
where an unsaved brother is reading the Bible to my father. Great and marvelous. Is there anything that we go through, Christian, that we cannot really look to our sovereign God, who we know holds all the pieces together in perfection and holiness, and say, God, I don't understand it, but great and marvelous. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the encouragement that we can get from it. Thank you for the truth that you are in control and that ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of this will be over one day and we will live in eternity with you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.